The Guardian. Hi, it's Science Weekly producer Madeline here. Today you'll be hearing the second part of a conversation we recorded back in late July with usual host Ian Sample, alongside two experts looking at the ethical questions surrounding track and trace apps. If you missed part one, Tuesday's episode, it's worth going back to listen. In the UK, as well as many other countries, the pandemic has highlighted several of the economic, health and social disparities minorities face. In England, for example, one survey found that over the course of lockdown, black, Asian and minority ethnic people were 54% more likely than white people to be fined under coronavirus rules for alleged breaches. When it comes to track and trace apps, the question remains how these often unseen prejudices will manifest themselves. Could an app increase the over-surveillance of minority communities? How would a parent on a zero-hour contract cope if the app told them to self-isolate? And is there sufficient trust in the government for enough people to download and use a track and trace app? It's clear that there's a good, strong sense of solidarity against people in terms of adherence to measures that would enable the pandemic response. And I think we all know that anecdotally from seeing how widespread compliance with social isolation and lockdown has been. But I think that applications are such a new type of technology that we don't really have that behavioural research yet to show us what are the factors that play into whether somebody, you know, uses an app and adheres to its instructions. Welcome to Science Weekly. One advantage, I guess, of the UK sort of stumbling quite badly through this pandemic so far is that other countries on a good number of things are ahead of us. And I'm wondering whether other countries have worked out the best model to use. I mean, is, is there anyone who either of you maybe give us a little taste of what, what is going on elsewhere in the world? As a quick reminder, Ian was joined by the director of the Ada Lovelace Institute, Kylie Kind, and the voice you'll hear next, Sita Pena Gangadharan, an associate professor in media and communications at the London School of Economics. I have been really intrigued by um, track and trace, uh, including digital track and trace in the Taiwanese context. And one of the things that really interests me about the case of Taiwan is because of the SARS outbreak in the early 2000s, the Taiwanese government passed a disease control act, I think it was in 2003, that then sort of kicked into place infrastructure for dealing with uh, pandemics. And in the aftermath of that, I think there has been a really vibrant debate about health surveillance, its merits, uh, what counts as going too far, um, you know, what is at risk for Taiwanese citizens. And this has lasted, you know, a good 16, 17 years since the the passage of this act. And uh, it's still ongoing. And it's very contentious. And yet, what I draw from it is that you have a sort of system that seems to, at least from the outside, it does really feel like it's robust, like the public has an expectation. And they have a degree of trust, I think, and confidence in government and civil society and the industry to kind of work together to make track and trace 
a success. And I think we have seen transmission rates are really low in the Taiwanese context. The fairness of the comparison might be debatable because it is um, a relatively smaller population than, say, what you're seeing in the United States. But I think the fact that there has already been in place this broad dialogue as to what should we expect from health surveillance, how can that really improve and augment our public health infrastructure? I think I think there's a lesson to be learned from there. Can I come in with just a couple of other countries? Although I think Sita was so right to bring up Taiwan, it's a great case study. Um, we've been tracking at a very high level on the basis just of news reporting, the success of digital contact tracing apps in other countries. And what we can say so far is very few countries have found widespread take up of digital contact tracing apps and certainly not at the level that the modeling done in the UK showed would be necessary to have a effective pandemic suppression as the result of contact tracing apps. In Australia, uh, Iceland and I think Norway are the countries with the highest uptake at around th- between 35 and 40% of the population. Um, So nowhere near the 60% that we have seen argued here would be necessary. Um, Interestingly, in the Isle of Wight, where they trialled the NHS app, there was also 40% of the population downloaded the app. Um, In none of those countries have we seen claims being made that the app has been a decisive factor in their response. Most countries have said that it is a complement only to manual contact tracing, but that it hasn't been a game changer in any respect. In Australia, I think the statistics are that the app has not been used to identify any contacts that weren't otherwise known to manual contact tracers. Um, And so I think broadly speaking, we can see in countries that have had a quote unquote successful response to the pandemic, um, it is more through a very thorough manual contact tracing regime, which, by the way, raises its own privacy considerations. And a very apt example there is South Korea, which has an extensive manual contact tracing regime that involves going through CCTV records, credit card details, using text messages to alert people that there is someone in their neighborhood who is infected with the disease. So it's not that manual contact tracing is the uh, privacy friendly way of doing it, but certainly evidence seems to suggest it's the more effective way than using an app for uh, exposure notification. And do we know why those countries are not getting the uptake of those apps? I mean, is it concerns over privacy or do those concerns seem to be a sort of a dominant factor? Or is it things just like laziness and and just not, not getting around to it? All these sort of very human reasons things don't happen? I don't know. I think there's an interesting research to be done in terms of what type of messaging has been effective around getting people to download the app. It's clear that there's a good strong sense of solidarity against people in terms of adherence to measures that would enable the pandemic response. And I think we all know that anecdotally from seeing how widespread compliance with social isolation and lockdown has been. But I think over the countries that I mentioned, even those countries with relatively high uptake of the app, you have countries there with very strong kind of citizen government ties, a country like Singapore, for example, where there's a high level of state 
involvement in individuals' lives, even there you still haven't seen what you might have expected to be kind of widespread compliance with encouragement to download the app. So I think there's, there is an interesting question about that. It probably relates to what we don't yet know about how people use apps more broadly and how they comply with things that apps tell them and, and how much trust they have in apps. I think that applications are such a new type of technology that we don't really have that behavioral research yet to show us what are the factors that play into whether somebody, you know, uses an app and adheres to its instructions. So from a historical perspective, I think that there's a really good chance that populations that have already been over-surveilled are less likely to make use of such an app. And that creates all sorts of problems. So I'll take the United States as an example, right? If you're already surveilled because you're poor and you're a person of color, you're black, right? You might encounter surveillance. uh, If you're a young adult, you might encounter surveillance in the schools. You certainly encounter surveillance on the streets, um, you know, by over-policing. You encounter a type of surveillance if you need healthcare that often involves linking healthcare to questions of criminality, right? If, if you're in that sort of context, you, the likelihood that you're going to download that app has to be really low. Why would you, in that context where you have very low reason to, to trust uh, certain institutions that say they're supposed to, you know, care about you and um, provide you welfare, but they don't, right? Why, why would you then think that an app is going to do the trick? Of course, we know in the UK that there's at least some correlation between communities that have been over-policed and over-surveilled and death disparities around COVID as well. So in terms of the app reaching those most vulnerable to the disease, we know that people from Black and minority ethnic backgrounds are twice as likely to die from COVID. And they're also um, more likely to have had historical experiences of structural racism and over-policing, over-surveillance, which undermines public trust, as Sita pointed out. If we do see an app emerge in the UK and it does end up with a decent uptake, which I know are two very big ifs, We are presumably going to see issues arise in those parts of the population who who don't have access to the technology, who can't use it, right? That there may be a point where people are disadvantaged by not taking it up, which maybe is a problem in itself. But what sort of problems might we see? I mean, one thing we've pointed out is the problem that around 20% of the UK population don't have a smartphone or use one regularly. And so any system built as an app first or smartphone first system has to take those people into account and provide them other measures or means for communicating with health authorities. Importantly, in the context of COVID, again, the same people who don't have smartphones are those more likely to be affected adversely by the virus, thinking particularly of elderly people. Um, And so There's a big question there about is this the most effective way to do the job we want to do using an app or would some other approach be better? In Singapore, I know they have 
decided to start rolling out Bluetooth tokens. So small little pieces of plastic that you might wear around your neck that would function in the place of a smartphone for doing that type of exposure notification. I'm sure such a thing is under consideration in the NHS as well, but it would be super important to think about digital exclusion and those on the wrong side of the digital divide and how they benefit from technology such as this. There's no doubt in my mind that digital exclusion is uh, something that exacerbates existing inequities whether that's health inequities or public safety inequities or education inequities. And making a contact tracing app compulsory without addressing the fact that there is uh, a lack of uh, broadband uh, infrastructure, including mobile broadband infrastructure, that certain populations actually can't effectively make meaningful use of devices and uh, computers. There are still a lot of questions about how people come to technology and how they incorporate technology into their everyday lives. So I would say that if contact tracing is made compulsory, we'll see a spike in those inequities for sure. Now, that probably means that we need to not only be focusing on a technological solution, but a solution that addresses support infrastructures more broadly. When people don't have choice about how they want to incorporate technology into their everyday lives, that's when we start to see problems. That's when we see trust unraveling. That's when we see a sort of contentiousness or a conflict arise between authorities and citizens. It's this idea that you're forced into a box, that you have to use technology in a particular way. And, and um, we know that that's not right, right? That we should have choice because that connects to our well-being. And so unless that's something that's in place, choice, we're not going to support people's um, capacity to live lives that they wish to lead, right? That they have reason to value that we're continuing marginalization in communities. Just to add to that with uh, some evidence on, on my side, I agree with everything Cedar said, we did this public deliberation and we found that of the 30 members of the public who we engaged with, and, and they raised many concerns and issues and questions around the use of the app, almost all of them said that they would download the app. And in fact, over the course of the deliberation, more people came to think that they would download the app than had at the beginning, even though they explored many of the problems and they aired many of the problems. But one thing they all agreed on, even though they all said, almost all of them said they would download the app, was that they thought it would absolutely have to be voluntary, that a mandatory app would undermine any sense of solidarity that people felt in coming you know, in helping out by using this app. So even those who are inclined to download the app still want it to be voluntary. They still want to have that choice. And do you think that people were increasingly happy or saying they'd be increasingly happy to download the app because they saw some moral duty in doing that rather than actually they suddenly trusted the system or trusted it to be hack proof or, or what have you? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I wish we'd 
gone into the reasons for their changing opinions on that. I suspect it was through having been involved in a very detailed conversation about all the elements of the app that increased their trust in the system or at least made them feel like informed users of it. You know, we spent probably a total of maybe 10 to 12 hours with them talking about this app, which is a lot more than most people have spent thinking about this app, even with the exception of present company. And so I think just that process of becoming an informed citizen around technology makes you feel more empowered. And I think probably people ended up feeling like they would at least give it a shot, knowing what they knew about it now. And Sita, if you had an app like this, um, I don't know if there would be any possibility at all of it being made compulsory, but you've worked with the impact of data technologies in marginalised communities. Do you see issues coming up along there? I do wonder if contact tracing is made compulsory, right? You need to have downloaded the app to enter a store. You need to have downloaded the app to enter a restaurant. I can see one potential side effect. For example, mutual aid societies might start to expand the support and care that they provide to local communities, right? So it's not just about delivering groceries anymore. It might be about creating different spaces for sociality to occur, right? That you don't have to, we can work around this compulsory, this coercive system that's being put into place. And that might be an interesting innovation and one that will eventually push a political transformation, but that's really hard to predict. Throughout this crisis, we've seen how this pandemic has really exposed and magnified inequalities in society. And I'm wondering, is there is there no way or is there any way that an app like this could actually help reduce those divisions? Is I don't know if there's sort of alternative ways of using this kind of technology or whether we're just looking at the glass being half empty. With any technology, you have to ask from the very start, what are the unintended consequences going to be? And so for uh, members of m- marginalized communities, say people that are involved in precarious labor, um, that yes, might absolutely stand to benefit from uh, quick notification that you've been exposed to the virus or you know you have the virus and now you have to notify your social network and your kinship network. Um, it that that is really important, right? It, it moving quickly really matters in the case of COVID-19. At the same time, it would benefit uh, the entire society to really have a conversation with members of marginalized communities to really ask them, you know, what is the most effective way that you think your community can care for itself, that you can care for yourself under conditions where you have to isolate, where you have to act quickly, where you can't... um, you know, go to your job, which has uh, cascading effects for whether or not you can feed your family, right? I think that we actually haven't posed the question to members of marginalized communities, though we have a sense of the disparities. We have this. Uh, we have a sense of uh, the problems that people face. We've never really centered uh, the conversation within these communities to ask them what is what is and what has been effective for you. 
before I let you both go, it'd be great to hear um, if you would be happy downloading a tracker app like the one we're expecting from NHSX and just what your sort of biggest concerns are for you individually. I guess I'll start. I I feel an obligation to download an app that's been invested in by our national health authorities and would do it. But I have to say that I would do it with a lot of skepticism about whether or not it works at all. And I would also, I suspect, find myself quite dubious about any notifications I got that were in contravention to my own instinct about who I'd been in contact with or whether I'd been too close to someone or whether, for example, I was wearing a mask and therefore was not as susceptible as the app might think I was. So I, I would do it, I think, out of the experiment to understand what my, how my own behaviour might change. But I think the app would have to meet quite a high threshold. And the minute I, something went wrong, I think that I'd probably lose faith in it. Sita, last word to you. It's a tough question. I tend to be, I mean, I probably sit in a higher risk category for a more severe impacts. So I see the value in contact tracing. And yet I don't know if, at least in how it's been presented, that digital contact tracing presents for me personally, a better option than manual contact tracing. So I'm risk averse. I'm happy being in my local, you know, half a mile radius uh, for the time being. I am very um, aware of my immediate social network um, from day to day. And I am eager to, to be in public conversation with people about the merits of downloading this app. And I would likely be swayed if we really had a, a vibrant and open conversation with a diverse range of members of the population. But right now it feels like the conversation has been really narrow and that we're not getting all perspectives as to um, how this app really fits into a larger public health strategy. Well, I guess the one positive of things taking a while is that we may have some time to discuss these things before the app is actually um, on our phones. Both of you, huge thanks for joining us and discussing all of this. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. That was Carly Kind and Sita Peña-Gangadaran speaking to Ian Sample. Thanks to them both for joining us on this podcast. This was just one of the many ethical issues we've stumbled across in the past few months, and we're keen to cover more. In fact, we're planning another double-parter on the ongoing debate over human challenge trials, deliberately infecting study participants with COVID-19 in the aid of rapid vaccine development but we would love to hear what you think. So do send us an email at scienceweekly at theguardian.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd really recommend listening to the episode Track and Trace, Will the Government's New App Work? From Today in Focus, our sister podcast, featuring The Guardian's UK technology editor, Alex Hearn. And finally, as always, do keep sending us your questions on the science behind the outbreak. 
by filling in the form found at theguardian.com forward slash COVID-19 questions. That's all one word. We'll be back on Tuesday. See you then. The Guardian. 